this honor to share with you guys tonight. Um, this, these are just some things I, I feel like the Lord's been <clears throat> emphasizing to me the past months, and they're they're probably some of the most like I think once we get into it, you'll see it would probably be the same for you. They're probably the most personally challenging words for me because they're they're some of the most intense things that Jesus says in in the Gospels, I think, and. Uh, so it's like all of us is it, it's a kind of a heavy thing. Um, I, I've just been asking the Lord for grace for us to be able to listen to Jesus' words as they are and accept them and respond to them. Um, and uh, I, I was kind of thinking, like uh, you know, I was going to be in Jerusalem twice over uh, between five and six months, and so I was, I was like. I'm going to study the Olivet Discourse, you know, it's like end times, you see all the events and see kind of like, I want to be able to stand up on the Mount of Olives and like see all the things and all this stuff, you know, and, uh, and I, you know, kind of went into it again, Olivet Discourse, I was studying it, and then the Lord just started emphasizing uh, the, the aspects of the cross and, um, and the following Christ crucified and all of those aspects that are actually in the Olivet Discourse. And so it's like, it's kind of like, this is not what I was thinking. And all of these things are just piercing me for, and, and it's like, I'm not even really looking at, you know, all the, the kind of things that are normally thought of in the Olivet Discourse. Um, and so th- some of this stuff is is out of that. But um, so I have notes here. If you guys will, will kind of go through, I move quickly through the notes. So, um, so here, uh, under point one, uh, Mark's gospel. Um, many of the earliest sources we have documented have associated associated the authorship of the gospel of Mark to John Mark um, as some sort of interpreter for Peter. So at some level. Um, it seems like the book of Mark was written under the leadership of Peter. And Peter was involved in the authorship, whether he was kind of dictating it to John Mark or, or recounting an eyewitness thing to however that works. Um, and so when you, when you read the book of Mark, as you guys probably have seen this before, you know, the, the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus is is in all the gospel accounts, but particularly in the book of Mark, um, it emphasizes the suffering of the Messiah um, through its passion predictions. It's constantly talking about servanthood and aspects of discipleship and things like that. It's almost like it it kind of highlights this aspect of the suffering of the Messiah and the discipleship, servanthood, aspects like that. And so um, I want to look at a little bit of Peter in his life, because he's the one who's kind of involved in the authorship of Mark. And then we'll dive into the Olivet Discourse, mainly out of the book of Mark, and see what's emphasized in the Olivet Discourse. So um, this is kind of the familiar passage, Mark 8. Um, This is Peter and the crucified Messiah. This is in all all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. all contain this this same kind of context and story, but we're reading Mark 8, 
Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on, on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. He continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be at also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And I have a little quote, but the, the context of the same thing in Matthew 16. I just want to kind of break this down a little bit and what happened here. Um, so, A, Revelation Rebuke, point one, he warned them to tell no one about him. So several factors could play into why Jesus doesn't want his messianic status to be shouted from the rooftops by everybody. Um, the, uh, there's a lot of things that play into it. I, I think that it's a mix-up of the, the will of God concerning a future sacrifice, um, knowing what was in man. He knew that men were longing for this messianic figure, and they would use the strength of the flesh to bring it about because it was happening all around in this context. And so he avoided these swells of self-exaltation and the masses crying out for a leader and all of these things. And also um, uh, the political powers crushed all of those guys that the crowds followed. So it's pretty expedient for him to not be shouting around, I'm the Messiah, because when people do that, Rome kills them. So, you know, there's a lot of factors involved in that, but... Uh, he begins to teach his disciples, uh, and he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. So it says that he must suffer. It was necessary. And there's other passages in the Gospels that speak about the necessariness of the of the suffering before the glory of the Messiah, and how it was it was uh, ordained by God as the way that He set forth. Rejected. You can look up these passages some later, but it's an allusion to Psalm one eighteen, um, which which Jesus quotes several times with the leaders and stuff. Point three. He was stating the matter plainly. Um, the Greek word used here. This translated in the New Testament variously as boldly, confidently, openly, and publicly. He's stating the matter of his necessary suffering 
plainly, boldly to the disciples. And so it's clear, this, this, this uh, scholar says that, um, just to summarize the quote here, he says, Peter's response to the first passion prediction indicates he understood quite well what Jesus is saying. He just doesn't like it. It was very clear what Jesus was saying in the context, but he doesn't like what he's saying. Um, and so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The word used for uh, rebuke in the New Testament is customarily used for rebuking demons. That is the worst and most ultimate form of evil. The use of this word with reference to Peter's rebuke of Jesus indicates the degree of Jesus's error about suffering messiahship in Peter's mind. Peter begins to, to rebuke Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah talking about his suffering, and Peter tries to cast the demon out of him. In a sense. It's, it's that, that degree of revulsion to that idea that he rebukes his leader. You know? It's intense to think about that. Um, and then it, 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 it says that uh, he began to rebuke him, so Jesus cuts him short. <laughs> he only started rebuking him, and, um, and it says, But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. So the command to get behind is clearly a rebuke back at Peter. However, it can also carry a sense similar to the idea of fall back in line, Peter. In other words, um, with the other, other disciples. Get back in line with the other disciples that followed the leader. And where are they following him? Uh, it, it, he... he in a few moments, he says, follow me in context of his suffering, crucifixion and death on the way to glory. And so it's almost like this, this rebuke of get back in line and follow me on the way to the cross. You know, does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, only, it's a rebuke, but it's also a, a, a follow kind of care because of the context of what, what's happening after that as well. So if you go to page three, the quote here um, says it's intriguing that the very same phrase behind me occurs both in both in verse 33 and 34. The first instance when coupled with a strong verb means get behind me or even get out of my sight. But the second case, it means what it normally means elsewhere in Mark after me. Um, when coupled with the verb to follow, which means to follow after me, be my disciple, follow my example, or even get in line behind me. Um, Peter has a choice. He can either be a hindrance or obstacle serving Satan, and so be something Jesus must leave behind on the way to the cross, or he can be a follower of Jesus, in which case he gets in line behind Jesus, takes up his own cross, and prepares for suffering as Jesus is doing. Satan, I think we clear, kind of, most of everybody has a clear context of that, but um, I'll just read the quote here. 
Satan offered Jesus the kingdom without the cross at Jesus' temptation. Peter now offers the same temptation and encounters the same title. Do you see what's at stake here? Like, far be it from you, the Messiah destined to sit on the throne of David should suffer. You know, Peter's idea of what was going to happen is that you're going to, you've got this group of guys, we're willing to follow you unto death, we're willing to lay down our lives, you've got the masses, we grow strength, and and we'll see later, he's sympathetic to the, the movements of his day of zealotry that would rise up in strength and, and try to overthrow Rome. And so he was expecting that from Jesus. He was expecting a Messiah to crush the enemies of Israel and establish the kingdom that was promised to Israel and restore it. And so uh, it's almost like the same thing, and, and Jesus rebukes that because he knows um, his mission. Um, point six Jesus says, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. The Net Bible translation um, says, uh, you do not have in mind the things of God, um, but the things of men. And so it's translated differently. I don't know what what versions you guys use in here, but uh, it either says God's interest or the things of God. Um, And so Mark's Context defines the um, the things or the thoughts of God as having to do with the necessity of Jesus' suffering and death. God's purposes will be accomplished by the obedience of His Son, even the death. The things of humans, whether Jewish or Roman, would be oriented toward conquest and assertion of power. Point seven. Um, He summoned the crowd with the disciples and and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus includes the crowd in the call to bear the cross. No one's exempt from the cost of discipleship he's demanded. So he's not just only saying, hey, you guys, my disciples, but he calls in the greater number of people. And he says, if anyone, anyone wants to come after me, so he includes the, this is the demand of discipleship. If anybody wants to come after me. So B, the call for the disciple to take up his cross and follow refers to crucifixion, obviously. Uh, the, the Roman means of execution and standard answer to the revolts of the day and all that they entailed. So the, the, the cross is not a a metaphor for something. I'm sure the disciples would have loved for it to be a metaphor of something, but uh, when you when you even look at the the the, the historical context of what cruci- crucifixion meant in their day, crucifixion and words around cross and things like that were actually used as profanities. They were the most, it was the most vulgar form of execution, and it was the, the most just, it was just 
like revulsive to people and people wouldn't even talk about it. It was like, you don't talk about this thing at the the dinner table. You know, you don't say that kind of thing publicly. It's like, these are all on the off off limits kind of rough things to talk about. And because it was so intense. And, um, and so when he says this, take up your cross and follow me, they have one thing in mind, and it's martyrdom. That's the one thing that's in their mind. It is, this is what happens to the guys who are following these leaders claiming to be the Messiah. And um, this is what the Romans do. They, they kill them. And they're seen within their context most mostly as martyrs. Um, and so that's the one thing in their mind. They're not thinking metaphorically. The cross is not just, you know, a hard life or the sufferings of the present age or whatever, whatever it may be. You know, I think that in our day, it kind of has become, you know, I'm going to take up my cross because... I ran out of counterculture at the co-op this week, and I got a drink, some black slug, you know. It's, it's just all like, you know. But in, in their day, it, it, it meant one thing. And and so, <clears throat> uh, page four. Those who would follow Jesus and proclaim as, Him as judge of the living and the dead must be prepared to die for their faith. Not all will die as martyrs, of course, but all must embrace martyrdom at the heart level. This is the cost of being a disciple. Um, Luke 14 These are, again, difficult words of Jesus. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Next quote. If disciples come after and imitate their teacher, their lives are forfeit from the moment they begin following him. Although genuine disciples may fall short in their commitment at times, The gospel tradition emphasizes that those who wish to follow Jesus must understand from the start that they're surrendering their lives to him. From this perspective, most modern Western Christians remain unconverted, a point we should grasp to grapple effectively with the impact of Jesus' words would have had on his own contemporaries. Point eight. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. If you see, um, wishing to follow Jesus is set opposite of wishing to save one's life. Whoever wishes to come after me. And then here, whoever wishes... To save his life. You can't have both. They're set in in opposition to one another. Um, Hey, David, real quick. Yeah, yeah. That last sentence again um, in the quote above point eight. Uh huh. 
Um, just if you could read just that last sentence one more time. From uh, just above point eight, where I can read it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, or Jesus, okay. The gospel tradition emphasizes that those who wish to follow Jesus must understand from the start that they are surrendering their lives to him. This next sentence is what stood out. From this perspective, most modern Western Christians remain unconverted. The point we should grasp, we should grasp to grapple uh, effectively with the impact Jesus' words would have had on his own contemporaries. I really just wanted to read that again for my own sake could, before you went on. Yeah. Because um, I, I missed it when we read through, but it jumped out to me. Yeah. That's good. So, um, yeah, look at the, the verse under under 8. Um, this is another Luke 14, 26. So we read, I put them out of order, but 27 was above 26 here. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, I've just been, this is a passage that's just kind of been uh, messing with me this past week is John 12. Um, it, it reads in English, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there my servant will, will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. But but when you look at this passage in the um, and in the original language of what it's written, the verbs carry much more impact than than the way it's kind of uh, translated out. And so it's he who is loving his life is losing it. It kind of carries a whole little more punch than than the way it's kind of translated. So they're, they're present active verbs here. He who is loving his life is losing it. He who is hating his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone is serving me, he must be following me. Like, as of now, like in the present, you know? Where I am, my servant will be also. Um, and so in, in this following me thing, he had just spoken in John about um, unless the seed dies, the ground, that kind of thing. And so he's actually talking about his way of suffering unto glory. <clears throat> so uh, page five. just read the, the last kind of to end up the, the context of this here for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul what will a man give in exchange for his soul whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels so um, we want to examine Peter's responses Point one, most likely 
Peter was sympathetic toward the zealot movement within the sect of Pharisaic Judaism of his day. This movement found context from the Maccabean revolts, and its distinctive perspective caused men to relate to the prophetic promises of the God of Israel as necessarily synergistic. All right, I'm going to explain what this means. This means that their view of the promises of God required the cooperation of man's strength for them to be accomplished. It's the prophetic promises of God require our cooperation with him for them to be carried out. And the reason that this happened is, is within the history, it's Israel's story. They're off in Babylon, they're exiled out of their land for 70 years into Babylon. They have all of these promises of God from the prophets that God is going to restore Jerusalem and it'll become the center of the earth and the, the glory of the kings of the earth. The Gentiles are going to bring their glory in and worship at a restored temple with the Messiah sitting on the throne of David and, and the resurrection of the dead, all these things, right? The kingdom of God. And they get back from Babylon and it's just not that awesome. You know, they get back and they're in the land. It's just like, hey, this, this really isn't the kingdom of God. It, it kind of stinks here. And guys are like fighting us. What's going on? Right? Well, maybe, maybe it's up to us. Maybe we didn't do something right. Maybe like if we just did this, then God would see us worthy to fulfill his promises. And so all of the list starts developing of if we just did this, if we just did that. And so they start looking for things. And most of them were actually looking for a man to rise up in strength, that there would be evidence that God was with that man and that he's the chosen appointed leader and Messiah. And they would gather in strength, they'd gather in armies, and they would try to do these uprisings in the cities and try to overthrow Rome. And, and their Roman answer to that was the, the penalty of crucifixion. That was the, the predominant answer to these uprisings of the strength of the flesh. It's like, we're going to make you hang there like a weakling, naked, and the birds eating your eyeballs, and you're, you're heaving for breath, and slowly die, and put you in your place because you're really a weakling. You tried to rise up in your strength, but you're nothing. That's, that's the Roman answer with crucifixion. Like, why did, why did God choose that way for our Messiah to die? What was he trying to say with that? Think about that. What was he trying to say, communicate to us in choosing that method of execution of Jesus? Why wasn't Jesus just killed with a sword or something else? Why did it have to be crucifixion? Because it happened within a context of where that thing communicated something very concrete. And even the scriptures kind of highlight this. But So Peter was, was sympathetic to these groups. And um, 
A, Peter's rebuke of Jesus after confessing his identity as the Messiah of Israel was in light of Jesus' prediction of suffering and death as the Messiah, one that was incongruent with Peter's more zealous views concerning the establishment of the Son of David in Jerusalem. You see, we talked about, kind of mentioned this a little bit um, before, but you see Peter's innate response in Gethsemane. John records the disciple who cuts the slave's ear off, and it's Peter. He's the guy with the sword in the group, right? Because it just seems like he's he's leaning more to these towards these zealot expression of what was going on in the day, and that was a very common thing in uh, the Judaism of, of the day. The, the zealotry expression was very popular. Because um, we, we found the one. Right. We believe he's the Messiah. I, I need to protect him. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, um, point A, Peter's denial of Jesus in the midst of the crucifixion events was likely related to his disappointment due to his zealot-leaning Messianic expectations. This man from Nazareth in whom he had put his hope to restore the Davidic kingdom was brutally crucified as a seemingly embarrassing climax to his short season of public ministry, the same manner as other failed Messianic claimants of the day. Just like all these other guys failed, they were all crushed. I put all my hope in him. They took him. And they brutally crucified him. It's like that's that's the thing with the disciples. Like we have the 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 like hindsight thing, and we don't enter into the gravity of like what that meant in those like days before the resurrection, that whole event thing, you know, and them being scattered and and fleeing and all of that. You can look at some of those other Messianic claimants in the footnote if you want to. Some of these guys that are even in the New Testament Acts. Um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a big movement in the day. Three, at Peter's restoration, Jesus calls Peter to love and lay down his life for the sheep as he did and speaks concerning the way Peter would bring glory to God through his death. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, speaking to Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. It's like those two words after saying that to Peter. What is that bringing up in his mind? Matthew 16 and Mark 8, that whole connection of you're the Christ. And he rebukes Jesus and Jesus rebukes him and says, get back in line, follow me, right? And then he says, I'll follow you unto death. You know, I'll lay down my life for you. And what happens? In the garden, 
pulls out the sword and reacts. And what's inside of him was that strength of the flesh expression was inside of him. And when the pressure came, it manifested. And, and then he flees in the midst of there's no hope in his deliverance. So he denies him. Right? It's, it's over. He's just like Theodos. He's just like Judas the Galilean. He's just like the Egyptian. You know? And, you know, and then and Jesus restores him. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? That whole, that whole scene. And, and then he says, follow me, Peter. So powerful. Mm-hmm. When you see um, the content of Peter's writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, both in Mark and First and Second Peter in the New Testament, we see that Peter humbled himself unto the way of the cross and sought to model and accent it to his audience. Mm-hmm. His zeal was reoriented, reoriented to follow the crucified in his way. So these passages like, you know, we can look at Mark a little bit more, but these passages like in First Peter, um, we don't have time to read all of these, but um, just, just read these. This is from the mouth of a guy who was leaning toward the zealotry thing, right? Just remember that. Like, if you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept him trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins on, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And he goes on. First um, Peter 4, we, we read this the other night together here. Um, since therefore since Christ has suffered in the flesh arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men but for the will of God all of these things about uh, suffering with him following the way of suffering in Christ crucified and and uh, Bearing in perseverance as, as one who follows him. It's like all of these things, Peter just, he's emphasizing things, these things in his writings. And you can tell that his restoration really brought about a humility in him in, in, in uh, reorienting his life around a whole new way that was very different than it was before in following a crucified Messiah. Um, so this is involved in, in what's going on in the Olivet Discourse. I want to, you can flip over to page seven. The, uh, this is, uh, the, the Olivet Discourse, uh, this is kind of, there's a lot here, but we're not going to try to read all of this, but, um, I, I think I'm becoming more convinced that can you give just real quick the background to the all of this course? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just a real quick. Totally, yeah. The the this is um, Jesus last week before the cross, and um, 
and they they come out of the temple area and they go up on the Mount of Olives and and um, the disciples are asking him concerning the temple and uh, and concerning when we talk about uh, he's he's answering things regarding the last days and regarding the uh, his coming and all of these things. But, but I'm come I'm becoming more convinced that the Olivet discourse. Most of the time it's studied within prophecy circles and all of these things like Jesus is forecasting forecasting eschatological events. You know, he's he's giving us the, the framework for eschatology, right? And I think that there's a lot that can be learned from the things that he's saying. But they had a framework for eschatology. It's called the Law and the Prophets. And they really clearly understood that. The thing that Jesus is doing in the Olivet Discourse, I think, is that he is uh, he is actually addressing these movements of the strength of the flesh. And he's using the framework to address them. So it's not, his purpose isn't to lay out the framework, but he's talking about the framework in order to address a problem. Does that make sense? Okay? Because the because what's happening is everybody is relating to things in strength in the flesh. This is the way. We're going to find the one that, that God has seen fit to be the Messiah. We're going to join up with him. We're going to conquer Rome. Like this is the this is the swell of the strength of man, strength of the flesh. And and Jesus is actually saying, no, it comes apocalyptically from God. No, it comes from the arm of the Lord, not the arm of the flesh. And you know what your response is? Is to follow me. And, he, and there's a cruciform aspect in the Olivet Discourse that he's calling his disciples to in light of the events. And he's saying, no, it's, it's apocalyptic from God. And all of these other guys, they're not apocalyptic enough. They are, they, they talk about it. They talk about the deliverance of God. They talk about the fulfillment of the prophets. But really, what they're all about is their own strength. And them bringing it about in cooperation with God. It's like, look what we did. Oh, and God helped us, you know. Like that's kind of the, the framework of what was happening in the day. Does that make sense, guys? Like... Okay. So, so Dave, what you're saying is they think that the end times are going to come by the strength of man. Jesus is saying, no, the law and the prophets say it's going to come purely by the strength of God. Yeah. And the Olivet Discourse is him correcting that view yeah. and saying, no, it's going to be like, whoosh. yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much, yeah, okay. along those lines, because... Um, yeah, yeah, because the he's he's correcting these he's talking about these insurgent movements and he's saying, Don't be deceived by these guys who are saying the Messiah's out here in the wilderness, who are saying the Messiah's here in the inner rooms. Don't be deceived by those guys. Because it's coming the son the sign of the Son of Man is gonna come in the sky and he like quotes all of these Old Testament passages that are very clearly the arm of the Lord enacting salvation. And things like that. And so, um, 
Yeah, exactly what you what you said. I think his that's his purpose in doing it, even though it contains framework for eschatology that we can learn from. He's mostly trying to address an issue. Does that make sense? Kind of. We'll look at. I just want to look at this section, and we could unpack all of that discourse in a, in months of teaching. But I just want to look at one one kind of specific section. Uh, within it, do you have anything to add, David? No, I, I just think you got the question that I mean. Obviously, Jesus is reiterating the framework from yeah. the Law and the Prophets, but he's addressing this problem that you're talking about, and it's it's just good, man. Yeah. It's good revelation. Thank you, David. I mean, a lot of a lot of folks take stuff in all of the discourse to try and prove the point that. We need to establish the kingdom. You know, the, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is, you know, whatever. Yeah. And they're like, see, we have to establish the kingdom. When the fact is that he's actually addressing the exact opposite of the kingdom now thoughts that we have even within the church. It's an excellent sure. thought. It's the exactly. exact opposite. Well, one of the reasons, too, man, uh, you know, preterist understanding or millennial understanding is that all of that discourse was fulfilled in 70 AD. So this is already past. You know, preterist, the word preterist means past. So this is why kingdom now, you know, would teach that this, this all of that discourse is already fulfilled. It's already, it, it, it happened in 70 AD when, of course, we know what happened with Rome and those <coughs> surrounding Israel, you know, when they came in and killed a million and the temple goes down again, you know, just so anyway, I, I hear what you're saying, bro, it's really good, but again, the, the, the addressing of what David's talking about really helps give understanding here, I think, you know, as to what's really going on, of course, 70, 70 AD pieces, you know. Yeah, yeah and I, I'm, and my purpose tonight is not to, uh, I'm kind of just working in this like small section and all of that discourse, and so I'm not trying to yeah. give a fulfillment framework and try to substantiate that tonight. Like to try to say this is what this passage, all where the fulfillments all are. You know, I just wanted to look at this this kind of driving thing along the lines of what we were looking at. Um, but uh, I'm just going to read the mark. The Markan version here, and you guys, I put them all out there, Matthews and Luke's of the same section where a lot of the same things are happening. But Mark 13, uh, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake uh, as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. It is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. Brother will be betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. It's a quote here. Um, Mark's whole understanding of the gospel 
what it does for believers, and what believers must do in response points to an eschatology understood in mission, not in withdrawal. The Son of Man who is to come recognizes as his own those who through proclamation and suffering have identified with his redemptive activity in the world. So we're working out of this section of Mark 13, 9-13. So watchfulness without and within. The, the first imperative in the, in the section here um, it is, I, I didn't put it in that section, but the first imperative in the Olivet Discourse out on Mark 13, Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. So Jesus begins the section in Mark's discourse with a command for his disciples to watch or see that no one misleads them. The ones who mislead many are the ones claiming messianic status as the promised Messiah of Israel, the son of David destined to crush all the enemies of the Jewish people and sit on the throne in Jerusalem. This finds context rooted within the, the heightened messianic expectancy of Judaism. And so they were expecting the Messiah to come, especially in Jesus' day, there was this, this heightened expectancy for him to come. And so uh, you have also in Mark 13, he says, If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Messiah, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false messiahs, false Christ, and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So the first command is watch out that you're not misled. See to it that you're not misled. B, the second command in page 8, <clears throat> Mark 13, verse 9. Be on your guard. Or literally, it, it's, it literally is, <clears throat> look to yourselves. For they will deliver you to the courts You'll be flogged in the synagogues and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The, uh, the Net Bible translates the first sentence, you must watch out for yourselves. So earlier in verse 5, disciples are Je of, of Jesus are called to watch or look towards others. See to it that no one misleads you, right? That they would not be deceived by messianic claims and movements boasting of provision for salvation based upon the strength of man. Here, disciples are commanded to watch or look to themselves. So, look to others, look to yourselves. You see the two? Look to yourselves, lest they lose heart in the midst of pressures and stray from the faith and the suffering witness contained within. The particular danger at the heart of this effort to seduce segments of the community was the implication that discipleship had something other than the faithful following of the suffering son of man. A following which invariably would prove to be both difficult and dangerous. Therefore, the second set of warnings was directed to the community itself 
in the form of a description of what its life must inevitably be. It's not a matter of suffering for suffering's sake, but of distress and persecution brought on by the community's determination to bear witness to Jesus in any and all circumstances. It's the look to yourselves, lest you lose heart, stray from the faith, and decide that it's not about following a suffering Messiah. And you don't give witness to a suffering Messiah. But you go along with all of these other groups that boast in the pride of man and because the wisdom of the world reacts to the proclamation of the suffering Messiah adversely, right? It's The persecution is inevitable in light of the message and lives lived out and proclaimed. So it makes sense. So he's saying, look to others, don't be deceived. Look to yourselves. Look to your own heart. Are you willing to bear the suffering witness of the Son of Man in following him? Like that's what he's after in the contest because they're going to be handed over, delivered over, betrayed. Does that make sense to you guys? So those are the two watches of the Olivet Discourse. Um, So they'll deliver you Page eight. The the Greek word paradidomi um, is translated various ways within this section and the larger context of the passion narrative in the book of Mark. The word is used three times within the section of Mark nine. I mean Mark thirteen nine to thirteen. So he says, "Be on your guard, for they will deliver you." And then again, he says in verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, it's the same word. And then it says in verse 12, brother will betray. So it's translated three different ways within a handful of verses. But it's the same word. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So um, this word handed over, delivered over, betrayed, whatever it is, um, it's striking Point two, that this word is used no less than ten times within the broader context of Mark's narrative leading to the crucifixion about Jesus. So Mark 13, paradidomy is used three times for the disciples. And then in Mark 14 and following, it's used of Jesus ten times. So there's uh, the next page. You can look at those. Um, <clears throat> it's also used in, in the confessional statements and the epistles a little bit too. But, um, page 9 at the bottom, point 3. <clears throat> the significance of this word being used multiple times for Jesus and his disciples conveys a shared destiny between the way of disciples and their teacher. It's, it's almost like he's saying, look to yourselves because they're going to deliver you over and hand you over. And then he models that 
for them. Mm-hmm. Ten times it says it in the next chapters, and he models and walks it out. And he says, follow me. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's the shared destiny between a disciple who follows their teacher. So, uh, Mark, uh, let, let me just read the bottom. Uh, this is out of Matthew 10. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but it's the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Disciple is not above his teacher, nor slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher enslaved like his master. If they have called the head of the house the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Like what this this phrase has kind of been like just for me is it enough for me to be like Jesus? He, he says in verse 25, it's enough for the disciple to become like his teacher. Like, do I believe that? Is it, is it really enough for me? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a heavy thought considering what, what it means to, to become like the teacher of the master in this section. Page 10, the quote here, Mark wished to parallel the fate of the disciples at the hands of hostile people by permission of God with that of Jesus and his passion. We're inevitably reminded of the sayings regarding discipleship in 8, 34-38. To follow the Lord who advances to Golgotha calls for willingness to shoulder a cross after him and courage to confess him before people, whatever the consequences. Behind and before, the delivering over of the community into the hands of its persecutors stands the suffering Lord of the community. Falsely accused before councils, hated, beaten, yet through endurance to the end bringing salvation. In the way of discipleship, he leaves to his followers a no less difficult road to travel than he himself walked. We see the same word, this paradidomy, used to describe Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15 to the letter written to those among the Gentiles. Um, And they're speaking of Paul and Barnabas, and they say, "These these are men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same word, risked. They translate it as uh, paradidomy. It's, it's the word paradidomy. And uh, it's interesting because this verb is in the perfect and active tense, meaning that these missionaries have themselves actively and decisively handed over their lives in a commitment to God And this action constantly characterizes their lives now and in the future. It's 
they have handed themselves over to Jesus to be put at risk. And that thing marks their existence until their death. It's just like, and they've done it themselves. They've handed themselves over to Jesus. It's the same word. It's like they, they, they took what Jesus said, <laughs> even about what was going to happen to his disciples and all of that discourse, and they said, we hand our lives over to him to be put at risk. <clears throat> Page 10, B, the bottom, he's um, as a witness, and it says, you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them or as a witness to them. And so um, this betrayal becomes the method for testimony to kings and authorities. Um, and, and so uh, you, can, you can read, you guys can read those quotes here. Uh, page 11. Think what, what I'll just say about that is, is most of the time when you think about it, it's like uh, the, the witness of the gospel is ended when the guy gets thrown in prison. You know, and it's like in Paul's life, the witness of the gospel, part of his calling was to go to prison and stand before kings and testify of the gospel before kings. And so we have this, the, the suffering elements of what happened in Paul in risking his life was actually part of the mission itself to stand before kings. And um, so uh, page 11C, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. So there's a negative command of do not worry. It's an active imperative command for the disciple of Jesus in context of being handed over in the mission to give faithful witness. It's like this is part of the mission is that God would hand you over. Don't worry. <laughs> And then the positive command, say, open your mouth, speak what the Holy Spirit gives you. Simple, right? Like he's saying disciples are commanded to voice the things the Holy Spirit will burden them in those moments. Then he, he, he goes on the rest of the discourse here, 13, 12, the brother will be betrayed brother to death, father his child, children will rise up against parents, have them put to death. Um, you, you get other passages in Mark, Matthew 10 and Luke 12 about this. This is actually, part of this is a quote from Micah. If you guys can read some more on that, like I don't want really to get into all of that because it's kind of like, it's, you can look at that. Um, point E on page 12. You'll be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. I'll read the last two quotes here. When disciples of Jesus becomes 
proclaimers of his message of the kingdom of God. And still more when, after his death, they proclaimed the crucified and risen Jesus as the Messiah and Lord of the kingdom. It was impossible for them to avoid sharing his passion. The endurance which wins life in the kingdom of God is that which does not fear those who can kill the body, but, fear, but rather him who has power over both body and soul at the judgment. It is endurance in the way of Jesus, bearing the weight and the shame of his cross, emulating his fearless witness even in trials and looking to the day of his appearing. This is the this is the substance of, of the responses that he calls disciples to in the Olivet Discourse is to follow him in the way of the cross. <laughs> in take up your cross and follow, and you're gonna be handed over to give witness. Don't worry. Speak. You know, and but he but he gives them those commands of watch that you're not deceived, because what is in all of us is we gravitate towards our strength, our wealth, our resource, our our everything. You know, and all of us gravitate towards that. It's 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 the pride and wickedness of man, and. There's sweeping ideologies and movements and this and that that just feed that thing, you know? And it's, I mean, it's just, it's been here for, since the beginning of time, you know, since the fall of man. He says, don't be deceived by that. Look, that you're not deceived. But then he says, look to yourselves lest you conclude that that following a crucified Messiah, that you would shrink back from following in the way that he set forth. You would just automatically deduce that discipleship no longer means take up your cross. Cross was just the, uh, you know, as Guy says, uh, the cross is just a vending machine to give us whatever we want in the present life. Right? Give us the glory, the power, the honor, the whatever now. It's like, no. The the issue of it is following Jesus is following in the way of his example. Is the pattern that he's laid forth in taking up our cross and following him. So I just found myself uh, really struck by these things I've been finding myself asking God to give me grace and I want to hand over my life I want to be delivered over to you in that way and do I really believe these things like you know, just I don't know just all those things and like God you say he who is loving his life is losing it God, help me, give me grace not to love my life today in this age. Like, you know, things like that that just been striking me. So, I don't know if, uh, 
I'd like for us to maybe just respond to the Lord some tonight, if we have time, unless there's